This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome everyone to episode 71 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and I've got another wild episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about serial killer Ed Gein. If you know about him already, then you know the wild and crazy stuff that he's done. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This first story is a little graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Edward Theodore Gein, also known as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield Ghoul, was a murderer and body snatcher. Ed's crimes, committed around his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, gathered widespread notoriety in 1957 after the authorities discovered that he had exhumed corpses from a local graveyard and fashioned trophies and keepsakes from their bones and skin. Gein also confessed to killing two women, tavern owner Mary Hogan in 1954 and hardware store owner Bernice Warden in 1957. Ed was initially found unfit to stand trial and confined to a mental health facility. By 1968, he was judged competent to stand trial, and he was found guilty of the murder of Warden, but he was found legally insane and was remanded to a psychiatric institution. He died at Mendota Mental Health Institute from respiratory failure resulting from lung cancer on July 26, 1984, at the age of 77. He is buried next to his family in the Plainfield Cemetery in a now unmarked grave. Ed Gein was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin on August 27, 1906, the second of two boys of George Philip Gein and Augusta Wilhelmine Gein. 
Ed had an elder brother, Henry George. Augusta, a fervent, fervently religious and nominally Lutheran, she preached to her sons about the innate immorality of the world, the evil of drinking, and her belief that all women, apart from herself, were naturally promiscuous and instruments of the devil. She reserved time every afternoon to read to them from the Bible, usually selecting verses from the Old Testament and the Book of Revelation concerning death, murder, and divine retribution. She hated her husband, an alcoholic who was unable to keep a job. He had worked at various times as a carpenter, a tanner, and insurance salesman. During his time in La Crosse, George owned a local grocery shop, but he soon sold the business and he left the city with his family to live in isolation on a 155-acre farm in the town of Plainfield, Wisconsin, which became the Gaines family permanent residence. Augusta took advantage of the farm's isolation by turning away outsiders who could have influenced her son. Ed left the farm only to attend school. Outside of school, he spent most of his time doing chores on the farm. Ed was shy, and classmates and teachers remembered him as having strange mannerisms, such as seemingly random laughter, as if he were laughing at his own personal jokes. To make matters worse, Augusta would punish him whenever he tried to make friends. Despite his poor social development, he did fairly well in school, particularly in reading. On April 1st, 1940, Ed's father George died of heart failure caused by his alcoholism at the age of 66. Henry and Ed began doing odd jobs around town to help cover the living expenses. The brothers were generally considered reliable and honest by residents of the community. While both worked as handyman, Ed also frequently babysat for neighbors. He enjoyed babysitting, seeming to relate more easily to children than adults. Henry began dating a divorced mother of two and planned to move in with her. He worried about his brother's attachment to their mother and often spoke ill of her around Ed who responded with shock and hurt. On May 16, 1944, Henry and Ed were burning away marsh vegetation on the property when the fire got out of control, drawing the attention of the local fire department. By the end of the day, the fire, having been extinguished and the firefighters gone, Ed reported his brother missing. With lanterns and flashlights, a search party searched for Henry whose dead body was found lying face down. Apparently, he had been dead for some time, and it appeared that the cause of death was heart failure since he had not been burned or injured otherwise. It was later reported by biographer Harold Schechter that Henry had bruises on his head. The police would dismiss the possibility of foul play, and the county coroner later officially listed a asphyxiation as the cause of death. The authorities accepted the accident theory, but no official investigation was conducted and an autopsy was not performed. Questioning Ed about the death of Bernice Warden in 1957, state investigator Joe Wilamowski 
brought up questions about Henry's death. George W. Arndt, who studied the case, wrote that in retrospect, it was possibly and likely that Henry's death was the Cain and Abel aspect of this case. Ed and his mother were now alone. Augusta had a paralyzing stroke shortly after Henry's death, and Ed devoted himself to taking care of her. Sometime in 1945, Ed later recounted that he and his mother visited a man named Smith, who lived nearby, to purchase straw. According to Ed, Augusta witnessed Smith beating a dog. A woman inside the Smith home came outside and yelled for him to stop, but Smith beat the dog to death. Augusta was extremely upset by this scene. However, what bothered her did not appear to be the brutality toward the dog, but rather the presence of the woman. Augusta told Ed that the woman was not married to Smith, and so had no business being there, and angrily called her Smith's harlot. She had a second stroke soon after, and her health deteriorated rapidly. She died on December 29, 1945, at the age of 67. Ed was devastated by her death. In the words of author Harold Schechter, he had lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in the world. Ed held onto the farm, and he earned money from odd jobs. He boarded up rooms used by his mother, including the upstairs, the downstairs parlor, and living room, leaving them untouched, while the rest of the house became increasingly squalid. These rooms remained pristine. Ed lived thereafter in a small room next to the kitchen, and around this time, he became interested in reading pulp magazines and adventure stories particularly those involving cannibals or Nazi atrocities, specifically from Isle Koch, I'm going to butcher this name, K-O-C-H. Ed was a handyman and received a farm subsidy from the federal government starting in 1951. He occasionally worked for the local municipal road crew and crop threshing crews in the area. Sometime between 1946 and 1956, he also sold an 80-acre parcel of land that his brother Henry had owned. On the morning of November 16, 1957, Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Warden disappeared. A Plainfield resident reported that the hardware store's truck had been driven out from the rear of the building at around 9.30 a.m., the hardware store saw a few customers the entire day. Some area residents believed that this was because of deer hunting season. Bernice Warden's son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, entered the store around 5 p.m. to find the store's cash register open and bloodstains on the floor. Frank Warden told the investigators that on the evening before his mother's disappearance, Ed had been in the store and that he was to have returned the next morning for a gallon of antifreeze. A sales slip for a gallon of antifreeze was the last receipt written by Warden on the morning that she disappeared. On the evening of the same day, Ed was arrested at a West Plainfield grocery store, and the Washora County Sheriff's Department searched the Gein Farm. 
A Washoa County Sheriff's deputy discovered Warden's decapitated body in a shed on Gein's property, hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes at her wrists. The torso was dressed out like a deer. She had been shot with a 22 caliber rifle and the mutilations were made after her death. While searching the house, the authorities would find whole human bones and fragments, a wastebasket made of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on his bedposts, female skulls, some with the top sawed off, bowls made from human skulls, a corset made from a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human leg skin, masks made from the skin of female heads, Mary Hogan's face mask in a paper bag, Mary Hogan's skull in a box, Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack, Bernice Warden's heart in a plastic bag in front of Gein's potbelly stove, nine vulva in a shoebox, a young girl's dress and the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. There was a belt made from female human nipples, four noses, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face, and fingernails from female fingers. These artifacts were photographed at the state crime laboratory and then decently disposed of. When questioned, Ed told investigators that between 1947 and 1952 that he made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local graveyards to exhume recently buried bodies while he was in a daze-like state. On about 30 of those visits, he said that he came out of the days while in the cemetery, left the grave in good order, and returned home empty-handed. On the other occasions, he dug up the graves of recently buried middle-aged women he thought resembled his mother, and he took the bodies home, where he tanned their skins to make his paraphernalia. Ed admitted to stealing from nine graves from local cemeteries and led investigators to their locations. Alan Wilmofsky of the State Crime Laboratory participated in opening three test graves identified by Gein. The caskets were inside wooden boxes. The top boards ran crossways, not lengthwise. The tops of the boxes were about two feet below the surface in sandy soil. Ed had robbed the graves soon after the funerals while they were not completed. The test graves were exhumed because authorities were uncertain as to whether the slight Gein was capable of single-handedly digging up a grave during a single evening. They were found, as Ed described, two of the exhumed graves were found empty. One had a crowbar in place of the body. One casket was empty. One casket Gein had failed to open when he lost his pry bar, and most of the body was gone from the third grave yet Ed had returned rings and some body parts. Thus, Gein's conf confession was largely corroborated. Soon after his mother's death, Gein began to create a woman's suit 
so that he could become his mother, to literally crawl into her skin. Ed denied having sex with the bodies that he exhumed, explaining they smelled too bad. During state crime laboratory interrogation, Ed also admitted to shooting Mary Hogan, a tavern owner missing since 1954, whose head was found in his house, but he later denied memory of details of her death. A 16-year-old youth whose parents were friends of Gein and who attended ball games and movies with him reported that Ed kept shrunken heads in his house, which Ed had described as relics from the Philippines sent by a cousin who had served on the islands during World War II. Upon investigation by the police, these were determined to be human facial skins carefully peeled from corpses and used by Gein as masks. Ed was also considered a suspect in several other unsolved cases in Wisconsin, including the 1953 disappearance of Evelyn Hartley, a lacrosse babysitter. During questioning, Washura County Sheriff Art Shalee reportedly assaulted Ed by banging his head and face into a brick wall. As a result, Ed's initial confession was ruled inadmissible. Shalee died of heart failure at the age of 43 in 1968 before Gein's trial. Many who knew Shalee said that he was traumatized by the horror of Ed's crimes, and this, along with the fear of having to testify, especially about assaulting him, caused his death. One of his friends said he was a victim of Ed Gein, as surely as if he had butchered him himself. On November 21, 1957, Ed was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder in Warashar County Court, where he had pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Ed was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent, thus unfit for trial. He was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, now the Dodge Correctional Institution, a maximum security facility in Wupon, Wisconsin, and later transferred to the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. In 1968, doctors determined that Ed was mentally able to confer with counsel and participate in his defense. The trial began on November 7, 1968, and lasted just one week. A psychiatrist testified that Ed had told him that he did not know whether the killing of Bernice Warden was intentional or accidental. Ed had told him that while he examined a gun in the Warden's store, the gun went off, killing her. Ed testified that after trying to load a bullet into the rifle, it discharged. He said that he had not aimed the rifle at her and did not remember anything else that happened that morning. At the request of the defense, Ed's trial was held without a jury, with Judge Robert H. Golmar presiding. Ed was found guilty by Golmar on November 14th. A second trial dealt with Gein's sanity, after testimony by doctors for the prosecution and defense. Golmar ruled Gein not guilty by reason of insanity, and ordered him committed to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Ed spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. Judge Golmar wrote, Due to prohibitive costs, 
Gein was tried for only one murder, that of Mrs. Warden. He also admitted to killing Mary Hogan. Gein's house and 195-acre property were appraised at $4,700, equivalent to $44,000 in 2021. His possessions were scheduled to be auctioned on March 30, 1958, amidst rumors that the house and the land it stood on might become a tourist attraction. Early on the morning of March 20th, the house was destroyed by a fire. A deputy fire marshal reported that a garbage fire had been set 75 feet from the house by a cleaning crew who were given the, given the task of disposing of refuse that hot coals were recovered from the spot of the bonfire, and that the fire did not spread along the ground from that location to the house. Arson was suspected, but the cause of the fire was never officially determined. It is possible that the fire was not considered a matter of urgency by Fire Chief Frank Warden, son of Bernice Warden, Gein's last victim. When Ed learned of the incident while in detention, he just shrugged and said, just as well. Ed's 1949 Ford sedan, which he used to haul the bodies of his victims, was sold at public auction for $760 to a carnival sideshow operator, Bunny Gibbons. Gibbons would charge carnival goers 25 cents admission to see it. Ed died at the Mendota Mental Health Institute due to respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer on July 26, 1984, at the age of 77. Over the years, souvenir seekers chipped pieces from its gravestone at the Plainfield Cemetery until the stone itself was stolen in 2000. It was recovered in June of 2001 near Seattle, Washington, and was placed in storage at the Washora County Sheriff's Department. The gravesite itself is now unmarked, but not unknown. Gein is interred between his parents and brother in the cemetery. Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com and it's their experience working in a haunted hospital. It was around 1994-95 when I got hired at one of the major hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio. I had a medical background and I was hired for the radiology department. Most of my experience was in patient care and secretarial work. However, I adjusted quickly to radiology. I learned very fast. After the first year, I began to hear stories about a ghost in the basement radiology file room. Every hospital has file rooms where the older patient file cases are stored before they leave the facility to go to a special warehouse for continued storage. Back then, we even had actual hard copies of x-rays. This was several years before going digital. After that point, we would burn patient CDs for them to take to doctor's appointments or surgeries. I would quite frequently go down to the basement to pull a basket load of film folders for patients to pick up for upcoming appointments, surgery cases, or doctor's cases presentations. I was in the basement file room pulling a lot of films for an upcoming presentation. 
All I had on my mind was getting those folders pulled so I could get back up to the office to do some of the other work that was waiting for me. I was quite accustomed to an occasional co-worker or physician coming in to ask for assistance and looking for something. I was busy filling the basket when I heard a slight noise over by the desk area. It was standing between the rows of tall metal file cabinets. I was right in a line with the workstation where I could see the tall office chair and the computer. I heard the office chair squeak, like someone just moved it or turned it around. Out of my periphery, I could clearly see a man of about five foot eight feet tall, dark hair, slight mustache, well dressed with dark pants, a white shirt, wearing a long lab coat with a stethoscope draped around his neck and his hand on the back of the office chair. Nothing unusual there. I turned to face him to ask if I could help. Just as I faced him straight on, poof, he disappeared right in front of me, leaving the chair that he had his hand on twirling around. I stood there blinking and trying to rationalize what had just happened. I was mildly startled, but not the least bit frightened. I recalled the story to the other girls in the office had told me. I didn't take them too seriously at the time. I thought that they were just slinging the bull to me, the new girl. I was rather fascinated to discover that it was true. My previous paranormal episodes in my life rather prepared me for this instant. I could scarcely contain my excitement, but I finished my work that I was doing as quickly as I could. When I got back upstairs to the office, it must have shown on my face. Karen, one of my co-workers, noticed right away. She came up alongside of me and whispered, Did you meet the doc? I shook my head in confirmation. I was excited, not scared. I wanted to know if they knew who he was. Karen just shrugged that they didn't really know who he was, but figured out that he must have been a previous doctor that possibly worked there many years ago. She told me when she first started, it was 15 years before I did. She was working down there pulling files and sending them up in the dumbwaiter that they used just for that purpose. She was just opening the dumbwaiter door to put some folders inside when she saw him from the corner of her eye. She too thought he was a real person. She went to ask him if he needed any help when he vanished in front of her, just like he did with me. She wasn't as calm and collected about the incident as I was. She dropped what she was doing and ran faster than she ever thought she could out of there. She went next door to the laundry room where she worked before. She went to radiology and sat down in their little office to get herself together. One of her friends could see something was amiss with her and asked her what the problem was. She told her, the woman nodded and grinned. She told her, don't worry, he won't hurt you. He comes here occasionally. We'll briefly see him walk in and disappear, but he doesn't really bother anyone. She told her that they thought that he was just curious as to what was going on in the hospital now. I surmised with the others that he had once worked there and must have been very devoted to his profession. Possibly, that devotion is what keeps him tied there. I haven't been there for about eight years now, 
but I imagine that he is still making his rounds like every good doctor does. Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the stories. If you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really does help others find us. Don't forget to share with friends and family. Make sure to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And please, do subscribe on YouTube. I'm just over 300 subscribers now, and once I hit 500 subscribers, I am going to do a YouTube-exclusive bonus episode. So if you want to hear that, make sure that you're subscribed. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening. And make sure to keep your doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.